Hello, good evening, and welcome to Seascapes. On tonight's programme, we hear where all those shotgun cartridges washed up on Irish beaches are coming from, an EU fund to develop small harbours around the country, and life on coal-fired steamships. On last week's programme, we were on Caramore Beach in County Mayo, where Joanna McNicholas met Moraid Staunton, Ocean Hero Award winner and beach cleaner. Moraid had uncovered something of a mystery and she was looking for help. I have a big jar of shotgun cartridges, the casings from shotgun cartridges, they're all used up and dead, but these come in on our shores and I really don't believe that they're all coming from Ireland. I'd love to know, I have a question for the powers that be, where do all the shotgun cartridges come from that land on our beaches? I, I recently, in the last couple of weeks, I've started putting them in my pocket rather than the rubbish bag. And you can see I have a huge jar of them gathered. And this is just one beach in Ireland. You know, they're coming in on all our beaches. I'd love to solve that mystery. Where do they all come from? Whose rubbish is this? And, you know, there's not just one piece of waste here. There's two components to it. There's the outside casing and then there's, there's the inside part, which kind of flares out like a star. But I'd love to know where they come from. That's my <laughs> first rant out of the and way. Is it just the West Coast they're coming in on or are they coming in on all our shores? I think they're coming in all around. But uh, oh. I'd love to hear other litter groups to see... Are they getting them as well and where they live? But where could that volume be coming from? Um, because that's a lot of cartridges. I think they float across the ocean and land here. I don't know, but I'd love to find out. I never hear shotguns going off around here. They're definitely not belonging to us, but where do they come from? Maureen Staunton in County Mayo. Now, we've been contacted by a number of listeners who believe they know the answer to where these cartridges come from. Clean Coasts sent me on a Danish academic study on shotgun cartridges found on Danish beaches. In fact, they found over 3,500 casings in a short space and examined them all. Now, while they established that most originated locally or in the North Sea, they had some interesting findings which relate to us here in Ireland. A shotgun cartridge in seawater will sink to the bottom. It then takes 18 months for the brass or steel casing to corrode and then at that time the plastic body floats to the surface it becomes highly mobile drifting with currents and wind. Some of the casings the Danes studied were 50 years old and they found the plastic bodies could last for centuries unless eroded on shorelines. Then another study by Rain Peninsula Beach Care in Cornwall where thousands of shotgun cartridges are found every year found it was more than likely that this shooting debris originated across the Atlantic in Canada and Newfoundland. In that part of the world, 200,000 guillemots and other seabirds are shot in licensed hunts every year. In Newfoundland, guillemots are called turrs, T-U-R-R-S. And Ian Jones, who's Professor of Biology at the Memorial University in Newfoundland, told me about the tur hunt and where he believes our shotgun cartridges are coming from. It wouldn't surprise me if, if um, all or almost all of them are coming from Newfoundland because that's, that's the way the drift comes. Uh, the drift is very much from Newfoundland westward out into the Atlantic and then, um, you know, in the edges of the Gulf Stream eddies and things. 
um, west coast of Ireland. Makes sense. That's where they would end up. How do they get into the water in Newfoundland first? Okay, we have what's called a tur hunt going on here. It's a traditional Newfoundland subsistence hunt for food. And a tur is basically, well, in in Britain, they're called guillemots. So you have the common guillemot and the brunix guillemot, and, and these are, this is a hunt for those two species, common guillemot and brunix guillemot. They're seabirds. They're very good to eat. Um, and they're, um, they're harvested in large numbers. More than 100,000 birds are taken every year. And um, peak numbers was a, a take of over 1 million birds in the 1980s. How are they hunted? They're hunted from small boats using shotguns. And um, so the, the way that I, I know that the, um, the plastic shotgun shells are getting into the water is that when you, you fire a, a shot at a tur. Um, and then the cartridge is ejected. Um, sometimes it falls into the bottom of the boat and is, you know, collected and disposed of properly. But a lot of the time, it flies out the, um, you know, the flies out of the gun and goes over the side into the ocean. Um, and not being recovered, then it drifts around and ends up in your backyard. You're a marine biologist. How how long does does it take for the brass on these to corrode and then for it to drift over to us? There's a lot of them look pretty worn. Well, um, some of these shells that are being used are an all-plastic or almost entirely plastic shell, so they don't necessarily all have that that brass base to them. So the plastic ones, obviously, are going to be more buoyant. Um, The brass ones, I mean, I haven't done any experiments to figure out how long it takes for that brass to corrode, but uh, I would imagine through, through, you know, wave action and things like that, um, you know, it might corrode away in a year or two. But the, the plastic isn't going anywhere. It's basically, it's not going to break down. So it's just going to keep drifting until it hits land somewhere. The bird the, that, that's hunted, the tur is spelled T-U-R-R. It's a very traditional way of hunting. It's a traditional hunt in Newfoundland. It is very much. And uh, the reason behind it, remember, um, you know, Newfoundland was settled going on 500 years ago. Um, by uh, people from mostly from the British Isles, and the um, during the winter, it's uh, this is a harsh environment, and during the winter, there's not a really readily available supply of fresh meat. So, tur hunters would go out from small communities all around the island and uh, harvest turs, um, and that would be an important part of winter diet. It's fairly inconceivable to people here in Ireland and in the UK that you would shoot seabirds for food? Well, it's a matter of taste. I, I personally find um, a couple of roast turs, slow-cooked in a cast-iron Dutch oven, to be about as good a, you know, a gourmet wild-game food item as I could possibly ask for. So they are incredibly good eating. I mean, we have partridges here that would be the same species as your red grouse, mm. um, and they are hunted, but there, there's nowhere near the numbers of these, these land game birds compared to the turs. There's millions of turs out there coming from Arctic colonies um, all across the Arctic, and so it's an abundant bird. The birds weigh um, approaching one kilogram each, so, you know, it's an, it's a, one bird gets you a good supply of meat. Okay, and do you just eat the breast, or is there more to it than that? Um, a few people do take the breasts off, but the, the best way is this is the whole bird, like a whole chicken. So just cleaned, the, the in, in, innards removed, head chopped off, 
Um, and then, like I say, slow roasted with the skin on, and that skin turns golden brown, and it's just crispy. Um, and the the meat is it's dark colored, like you know, like a lot of other game meat, but it's incredibly tender and soft, and it practically melts in your mouth. So they're incredibly good eating, and so they're they're much sought after by Newfoundland tur hunters. You've been critical of the hunt in the past. Well, I am. I am. I would like to put it in a positive way. I think that um, harvesting of wildlife should be sustainable, um, and that's in everybody's interest, uh, especially the the tur hunters. It's a bit of an unusual bird for a bird to be included in a hunt because most birds that are that are game birds, like ducks and pheasants and partridge. And things like that. They um, they're what biologists would call R selected, which means they're great reproducers. They females lay a lot of eggs. They lay a large clutch of eggs. They have a lot of offspring. Whereas turs are like many other seabirds, are what we call K selected. Um, they only a pair only lays a single egg uh, at a time and, and produces one chick per year. So you can imagine. It can take a long time for tourists to replace themselves if birds are being removed from the population. And is there a, a, a top number? Is is there a limit on the number of birds that can be taken? There, there is a limit. Um, it's it's about twenty birds per person per day, which may seem like a lot. But the way the weather is from around here, most tour hunters might only get out a few times in a year, because remember, it's small boat hunting in winter. And you can imagine with the you know the gales that uh, are blowing through here, most of the time you're better off inside, and your boat you know your boat is tied up or it's in the mm. shed. And the hunt is before the breeding season. The hunt is taking place in the winter, and typically in the past, most of the birds taken in the hunt, most of the turs, were the Brunix guillemot, which is the uh, an Arctic breeding species, um, and. Most of the most of those that were taken were young birds, which actually it sounds counterintuitive, but that's that's good. You want to remove young birds uh, if you're doing a harvest, and leave the adult birds too, who are experienced to uh, breed successfully the next year and replace themselves. And but more recently, there's been a shift to more of the common guillemot, or just guillemot, um, which is a less uh, its total population is much smaller. Um, and there's also been a shift so that more adults are being taken in the hunt, and we don't want that. We would prefer that young birds, the hunt be restricted more to young birds. People in this part of the world might recognise guillemots because if you're out on a boat and there's little black birds swimming ahead of you and you come up towards them, they dive, duck down under the waters. It's their habitual form of getting away. Yeah, they're like, they're like miniaturised penguins, basically. Yeah, they're black and white. They're diving seabird and... Um, the the hunt consists of uh, launching your boat. Remember, it's the middle of winter, maybe well below freezing. You're launching a small boat, and you're going up to several miles offshore, looking for these birds. And then they're they're taken while they're mostly while they're sitting on the water. Although uh, in in one area, most of the birds are taken while flying. So you're in the boat, and it's flying by, and you're in a rolling boat, and you're attempting to to get a bead on these these turs that are flying by. So it's. I call it kind of the world's most exciting and dangerous hunt, um, but it's the object of it is uh, are these amazingly uh, delicious turs. So that's where our shotgun cartridges along the west coast of Ireland are coming from. 
That's what I would say, yeah. And remember, it's if if the hunt is between 100 and 200,000 turs taken per year, um, you know, and if it takes, say, two shots per tur and half of the cartridges go in the water, then that's a lot of shotgun cartridge plastic going in the water. Ian Jones of Memorial University in Newfoundland. And now you know, if you come across a shotgun cartridge on an Irish beach, it's probably across the Atlantic. It's been in the water for at least 18 months before it even started to float and then undertook a 3,000 mile journey. This week, a 35 million EU fund was announced to develop small harbours around the country. The money is part of the Brexit Compensation Fund and West Cork TD Christopher O'Sullivan told me what was on offer and how these funds could be accessed. Apologies for the electronic interference at the very beginning of this report. Yeah, so there's 35 uh, million available nationally. The funding is targeted at uh, local authority uh, owned peers. So, for example, in my own area, the local authority would be Cork County Council. There's a cap of 1 million uh, euro on each project. So this really um, is targeted at those smaller peers, those smaller bits of marine infrastructure dotted along our coast. Um, and I know that you'd be familiar with a lot of those uh, smaller piers and harbours. Um, the likes of Port McSherry, the likes of Roaring Water Bay, there's many uh, smaller pontoons, we'll say, on the Mizzen Peninsula and on the Bear Peninsula where you have smaller piers and harbours. So the aim really is, I suppose, and it's something that I've uh, contended and maintained for a long time, is that the potential that we have in terms of uh, our coast and what we can do on our coast and utilising our coast is enormous. Um, but we haven't been able to realise that potential because we don't have the infrastructure. So um, if we really want to embrace things like you know whale watching, um, boat tours, kayaking, sailing activities, which are popular uh, as they are in, in, in places like West Cork, investing in these smaller piers will, will make a huge difference. There are two aspects to this. There's the tourism, is, which is number one. Yeah, I think the tourism potential of uh, improving piers, slipways, harbours along uh, the Cork coast is enormous. Um, things like installing smaller pontoons that will allow um, vessels to, to um, tie up. That's something that's really lacking along the Cork coast and I really uh, love the idea of being able to leave Cork Harbour on a certain day and make your way down along the Cork coast, down to the Bear Peninsula and stopping in these smaller piers and harbours along the way, availing of something like a smaller pontoon. So if you can imagine the likes of Court McSherry, uh, Ring Village near Clonakilty, Glandor heading west into the uh, Mizzen Peninsula and the Bear Peninsula, the idea that you'd have a network of pontoons that you could just uh, pull in, tie up and have a safe place to, 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 to stay for the night. I think the potential tourism aspect of that is enormous, the potential value to local economies. And I would, you know, something along the lines of a um, the Shannon Cruises, where, as you know, you can stop in several points along the way. They have the infrastructure, they have the pontoons. Yes, it's more sheltered and not as exposed to the elements, but there is enormous potential there. You could also then do that in a much smaller boat than you could now, so it makes it uh, more accessible to a much greater group of people. Exactly, yeah. You, the, the pontoons are far more useful, useful for, the, for the smaller boats, and it, as you say, sometimes uh, marine leisure can be an expensive enough uh, hobby, um, but this would make it accessible to those smaller vessels uh, and make it more accessible to the public then in general. The second part of this then is the our shore fishermen. If there's blow anywhere down that part of the country, most parts of the country, those boats either have to be taken out of the water or moved somewhere very sheltered. 
Yeah, exactly. And dotted along the Cork coast again and right around the Irish coast, in fact. Uh, there are so many people who either their, their full-time uh, income is from uh, inshore fishing or or else they might be supplementing a uh, farming income. Um, and at the moment, they're having to rely on facilities where they you know, they have to launch in pretty dangerous scenarios where you have piers and slipways that are either cracked, uh, that are weather damaged, um, and it, it makes things uh, quite difficult. So in order to, um, I suppose, promote um, inshore fishing, uh, which you know is sustainable, um, I think investing in piers and harbours, improving them, fixing them where they need to be, and you know we, we all we're all aware of the big fishing ports like um, you know Castom Bear Union Hall would be considered a bigger fishing port, Baltimore as well. These are quite big facilities, but those smaller facilities in the likes of Roaring Water Bay, uh, Shirkin Island, um, you know, Court McSherry, these 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 places can really benefit um, enormously. I feel from this type of funding, uh, so that they can actually improve uh, safety for inshore uh, fishers, uh, but also just improve the, um, their ability to access the water. You've just been speaking in the Dole this afternoon about whales, dolphins. It's an area you're involved in. Yeah, it's, a, it's a, an area, I suppose, for the past uh, 20 years. Um, the coast of Cork has become uh, the place to go for uh, whale watching, I would contend, in the, in the whole of Europe. Um, and again, there's, there's enormous potential there. We are lucky off the Cork coast that we have an abundance of species. Um, the variety of species that we get off the Corcos is incredible from um, smaller harbour porpoise, common dolphins, right up to the bigger whales like humpback whales and fin whales. And um, Some people don't believe this and, and they find it hard to get their heads around but uh, the numbers of humpbacks and fin whales that we get visiting uh, the coast of Ireland um, from April right through to October is enormous and Something I've been involved in from Court McSherry uh, on a voluntary basis now is guiding whale watching tours from Court McSherry and showing people uh, these incredible animals. The fin whale is the second biggest animal that has ever lived at almost 27 metres. Uh, people are just astonished when they see these animals and they don't have to go to New Zealand, they don't have to go to Canada, they don't have to go to Hawaii. It's right here on our doorstep and uh, improving facilities like pontoons, like piers and harbours, it'll allow more people to do it in a more sustainable way. You're a bit concerned as well about these naval exercises, these Russian naval exercises that are taking place? Yeah, I, I am, and that is because the area that's been earmarked for these exercises is the area known as the Porcupine Sea Bite. Um, and you know, most people will be aware of the Porcupine Sea, sea Bite, but for those who aren't, it is uh, basically a chunk almost taken out of the continental shelf where the uh, continental shelf drops into the deeps. Um, it is an incredibly important area for uh, marine wildlife, for whales, for dolphins uh, and for, for fish as well. Um, and particularly for deep diving species, species like sperm whale. Um, and sperm whales, they, they dive to great depths to catch their prey. At those depths there's absolutely no light um, whatsoever, so they use these high frequency clicks in order to hunt. So if you can imagine, if there's any sonar activity, if there's any um, high decibel uh, loud noises from missiles, that is going to have a huge impact like a species, on a species like sperm whale, on species like uh, pilot whales, long-fin pilot whales, um, you know, which also dive to, to great deeps. We get blue whales in the Porcupine Sea Bite. It's one of the best places in the North Atlantic to see the biggest animal that has ever roamed uh, our planet. Um, and have no doubt about it that uh, activity like missile launches um, off in that area in the Porcupine Sea Bite is going to have a huge detrimental impact. It's going to be an ecological disaster as far as I'm concerned and uh, I've no doubt about it that but it will lead uh, to mass strandings of these stunning species. Really? 
really? Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, scientists have proven that sonar activity and high acoustic activity has an impact on these species. And, you know, when you think, as I said, I described the porcupine sea bite, it's very, very deep water. It's where those deep sea diving specialists uh, um, occur in big numbers, pilot whales, sperm whales. Beaked whales, Cuvier's beak whales, some of these whales are very rarely seen because they spend most of their time at depths. Uh, they rely heavily on acoustics and sonar. All cetaceans rely uh, on acoustics to hunt. So if you're exposing those animals to uh, incredibly high decibel noise, noises, and, and to go a step further, there's potentially, may have the potential of submarines uh, accompanying the, um, the, the, the uh, Russian ships. If they're pinging sonar down in the depths, that is clearly going to have an impact on these uh, sperm whales and pilot whales that rely on that uh, on that similar technology to hunt. So, yeah, you, you it will have an impact and it's been proven to have an impact. Christopher O'Sullivan, TD. And you can find more information on that aid package and how to access it on the Department of Agriculture and Marine website. On last week's programme, we discussed the one-day work stoppage by members of the Force of Trade Union in the Sea Fisheries Protection Authority. As predicted, there was another 48-hour work stoppage this week and that dispute has not been resolved. We'll keep you informed about what's going on there. Those Russian Navy ships we've been hearing about all week will most likely be powered by nuclear reactors. Marine technology has come an awful long way in the last 50 to 75 years, but Norman Freeman has been looking back at life on board coal-burning ships and at the men who kept those fires lighting. For decades, the town of Newry was the centre of a coal-importing business. The colliers of Joseph Fisher and Sons carried cargoes of coal from Britain, up the canal that linked the town to the head of Carlingford Lock. Men working on the Albert docks were used to unloading coal from the holds of ships. For many, coal was entwined with seafaring. There was a long seagoing tradition in the town and the nearby Cooley Peninsula. Men went to sea at a time when coal was used to fuel the furnaces to create the steam power that drove the vessels. In the early years of the 20th century, men travelled across the Liverpool to join ships there. The impressive passenger ships of the White Star Line attracted some. Most men preferred to work on deck. However, Jobs were scarce and some had to settle for one of the most gruelling jobs in the history of seafaring, as a fireman or stoker down in the boiler room of the vessel. Many years ago I met an elderly man in a pub in Carlingford who had spent some time as a fireman on one of those big transatlantic ocean liners. He told me he still had nightmares about the back-breaking labour of shoveling coal into the furnaces for four hours at a stretch. He said, Ah, oh, the heat down there was terrible. The air was full of coal dust. It got into your eyes, your ears, your hair, and worst of all, down into your lungs. The clothes, faces and hands of the men became blackened. Little wonder they were called the Black Gang. This man made the point that skill was required of the fireman. He had to keep the furnace fires level, ensure the coal was burning efficiently, and remove hard lumps of residue called clinkers. Ah, you had to have strong arms and shoulders. You had no business being there if you weren't able to keep going, he said. The heat was overwhelming. Heavily perspiring men could suffer from dehydration. There were accidents. To touch a furnace door or to fall against one meant serious burns. And it could happen if the ship rolled in a heavy sea. 
The noise was deafening in that underworld. Men had to shout to make themselves heard. The black gangs included those who worked in the cavernless coal bunkers. Their job was to send a constant supply of coal down to the boiler room. They were called trimmers because they had to keep the coal in the bunkers at a level pitch so that the ship stayed on an even keel. This man told me that on the Titanic there were 150 firemen who shoveled coal endlessly into the many furnaces beneath the 29 boilers. Some 825 tonnes of coal were burned every 24 hours. When the ship struck the iceberg, the firemen were far below, with many companionways to climb before they emerged onto the open deck. By the time they got there, most of the lifeboats had been launched. Yet 44 survived. He said that the greatest thing that happened at sea was when ships began to use oil instead of coal. It was cleaner, more efficient, easier to load, took up less space in the coal bunkers. Most of all, it did away with need for stokers and trimmers. No harm done at all, he said, showing me the long scar on his forearm where he had suffered a burn many years before. Norman Freeman. And that's it for Seascapes for this week. We're back at the same time next Friday. Everything on the programme is podcast. It's on our website, rte.ie slash seascapes. If you want to contact me or the programme, the email is seascapes at rte.ie. If you're anywhere on or near the water over the next week, stay safe. Seascapes is presented and produced by Fergal Keane.